Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. William Buckley, godfather of the conservative movement, famously said he'd rather be governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston phone book than by the 2,000 members of the faculty of Harvard. Buckley was a Yale man, but the idea of college campuses as incubators of liberal snobbery stuck. The role a university education plays and should play in America's meritocratic tradition has been up for debate ever since. With 178 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Priddo, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, has university become a block on social mobility? Amid the pandemic, some students are filing lawsuits demanding a refund on their tuition fees, classes via Zoom don't match the level of education they were promised. The high cost of college education continues to provoke concerns that it might not be worth it. Recent scandals have made elite college admission systems look unfair. The perception that university is no longer a driver of social mobility, but the precise opposite, fuels the political divide. In this episode, we'll hear about a potentially revolutionary scheme that helps poor students complete college unpick the complicated history of American meritocracy and speak to someone on the front line of the fraught admissions process. With me as ever to chew over all of this is Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, as far as I can tell, you're in a closet at the moment. I can see some coat hangers dangling above your head. Has has lockdown come to this? (laughs) Everything's perfectly under control. I'm recording the podcast in a closet and my daughter has taken up an obsession with salami in the midst of an American meat shortage. So all is well. And John, how are things your end? Has salami fever hit northern Connecticut yet? No, no salami fever here. My younger son has discovered an untapped passion for bow hunting. He is getting a bow and arrow sent to him in the post today, and he's promised to hunt us a wild turkey for dinner by the end of the week. And unfortunately, I have promised to clean and dress it. Well, let's see if we can get through this podcast without an arrow whistling past your headphones. This week, I wanted to do an episode about college and social mobility, really sparked by a story that Idris Kaloon has been reporting for us. He is The Economist's US policy correspondent based like John normally in Washington, D.C., and he's a regular visitor to this podcast. He told me that a big thing people miss in the debate about how to get more people from poor backgrounds through college is the dropout rate. Efforts to keep underprivileged students in college once they get there are making a real difference. And I think this is a sort of unsung success story in social policy in America at the moment. One of the students I spoke to who I think was kind of the clearest examples of the stakes at play here was a man by the name of Joel Cabrera, 
who grew up in a poor neighborhood in the Bronx. His middle school was plagued by fighting. The high school wasn't interesting to him. He eventually dropped out. A bit after that, he realized that he needed an education in order to get ahead in life. And so he re-enrolled in an equivalency course at his local community college right there in the Bronx. And it was there that he came across a scheme that was called ASAP. And the idea of that program is to help students like him manage to complete a two-year degree. Now, the program, in his case, helped a lot. He finished a two-year degree. He went on to get a four-year degree, a couple of internships at the state senate and other places and a series of good jobs after that. Growing up, he saw his neighborhood, the outcomes were either death or jail. That's what he said. And he managed to avoid that. And I think the lever of upward mobility in his case was his ability to get a college degree. Now, Joel isn't the only person that I spoke to. There are lots of other students in New York who have gone through this program, some in Chicago who are in the middle of another program, and they've seen pretty good results there. Basically, they're seeing graduation rates that are two or three times higher than you would expect. That's an extraordinary improvement. I mean, you rarely see that sort of improvement in social policies in any area of American life, really. I'm ashamed to say I hadn't heard of ASAP until you brought it to my attention when we started talking about this story a couple of weeks ago. So tell me a bit about how it works. Lots of people have tried to think about why is it that so few people, maybe only a third of people, will start two-year college programs and not finish. And there are a couple of different barriers that people have pointed to. One is just cash, the fact that people have to pay tuition. And even if they have the, their tuition being paid for through other means, uh, the cost of transportation, books, and all the rest is keeping them from actually finishing. Another theory is that students who have not come from the best high schools have to go through remedial education, which doesn't count towards their ultimate degree. So they're spending money taking courses that don't count. And another thing being that they might not have experience with the entire college program, and they might not know, for example, what to do if a professor asks you to resubmit some work, things like that, that, that might just be natural for other kinds of students. And so there have been lots of interventions on each of these individual pillars. The idea of a program like ASAP was to do all of them all together. You give cash supports to students. In the case of New York, it's funds for textbooks and Metro cards. You make sure that they enroll full-time. You make sure that they meet with advisors. You have a sophisticated data operation that monitors them to make sure that they're not falling behind on their classes. They saw really good results. They saw a doubling of the graduation rate. There are a few things in social science that you will find a doubling of the desired outcome within a very short period of time. One of the things that just really interested me about this ASAP work is that so much of the conversation in America when it comes to universities and social mobility focuses on the elite, highly selective, often Ivy League schools and questions like affirmative action and college affordability. And it just misses this huge swathe of people in America who are going to community colleges. Really, if you're interested in social mobility and you're interested in the kinds of income boosts that people get from going to college, the real engine of social mobility in the university sector is those two-year community colleges rather than the Harvards and the Yales. Nevertheless, there is this big question in American education, particularly at the elite level of university education, about whether colleges are still engines of social mobility, or whether by allowing the elite to essentially hoard privilege have become 
blocks on social mobility. Charlotte, what can we say about that question looking into the data? So there are a few questions here. There's one question, which is a substantive one on whether the data suggests that people who go to college actually do get a leg up. And then even before that, there's a question of whether this supposed engine of social mobility is available actually only to the rich and that the system is not meritocratic. And if you want to dwell on that question, as people have, there's sort of a variety pack of stories that you can choose from to show how universities are broken, depending on your political bent. So, of course, there was the college admissions scandal with Lori Laughlin, who's an actress playing $500,000 to have her daughters listed at crew recruits at USC. Conservatives might point to affirmative action. There was this lawsuit charging that at Harvard, in the effort to have a diverse class, that Harvard was systematically discriminating against Asian Americans. There are some colleges that aren't need blind. That is, in deciding who to admit, they consider whether a student has the ability to pay full tuition. And those include sort of cuddly and prestigious colleges in the Northeast, such as Bates, Wesleyan, and Tufts. So there's a lot of evidence that this supposed engine of meritocracy isn't actually that meritocratic. At really uber elite schools, Paul Tuff has shown in the Ivy League, for instance, that at least two thirds of every class comes from the top income quintile, that is the top 20% of income earners, and the bottom 20% account for less than 4% of the class. John, in all these discussions, Harvard always gets it in the neck because it's so high profile. But nevertheless, part of that lawsuit that Charlotte referenced, brought by Edward Bloom, who's a sort of conservative agent provocateur, did reveal some pretty interesting numbers about who gets to go to Harvard, right? It did. As you mentioned, Bloom brought the suit, and he has a long history of targeting racial preferences in American life. He was at least partially behind the suit that gutted the Voting Rights Act. But the interesting thing, to my mind, that came out of his suit against Harvard is a paper that found that 43% of Harvard students were either recruited athletes or legacies, meaning the children of people who had gone to Harvard, or the children of donors or faculty and staff. Now, that seems to me a pretty strong argument that elite education often acts as a sort of cementer of current social position rather than as a booster of mobility, which is not to say that it can't boost mobility, but that it does so at a very small scale. And that, as you say, if you are concerned about ensuring that university education helps people move up the income ladder, you're much better off focusing on community colleges, as Idris said, rather than on elite institutions. In 2009, President Obama asked Congress for $12 billion to revitalize community colleges. And this was in the wake, of course, of the financial crisis when people were thinking about retraining workers and trying to help recent graduates as well develop proper skills. Congress didn't allocate that $12 billion. For a sense of scale, between 2013 and 2018, Harvard alone raised $9.6 billion in a single fundraising campaign. So there's just this huge chasm between the resources that are devoted to some of these two-year colleges that have many more students and the most elite universities. Harvard also tried to snatch a little more money from the PPP, right? And they had to give it back. Yes. Donald Trump was very happy to use Harvard as a punching bag. So Charlotte, there's this obsession among American parents, particularly of a certain kind of class, about getting their children into the right schools and they'll do almost anything in order to increase their chances. What do we know? What can we say with real confidence about the difference that going to college makes to the income of people who go? 
Well, you see, just before getting into the data on that, there is a bit of a backlash among some corners of the elite. Peter Thiel, for instance, a Silicon Valley billionaire, is among those who says that college might not actually be worth it. But the evidence suggests that if you're poor and you don't go to college, that's a bad thing. So you're more than four times as likely to be poor as an adult if you don't have a college degree than if you do have a four-year degree. And some of the other data, though, goes back to Idris's point, which is that not that many poor people actually finish college. So less than 15% of people in the lowest 20% of income earn a degree over a 10-year period. That may be because the students aren't being properly prepared from kindergarten through 12th grade through high school for college. It may also be that they don't have the right type of support. They don't have an ASAP or a similar program to help them complete college. Yeah, the single statistic that I found most striking in Idris's piece this week is that if you take black males, only 30% of those who embark on a BA degree complete it within six years. It gives you a sense of the sort of racial gap in college achievement here and what a big difference it would make if America's able to, to narrow that a bit. It's also a reminder again of how the conversation that's focused on university admissions around African-Americans and affirmative action is really, in some senses, a massive distraction from what the real problem is and where social mobility really happens in America. You know, if you can narrow the achievement gap for black students at community colleges, you would make a massive, massive difference to social mobility in America. And it would matter a lot more than whether the affirmative action rules at Harvard or Yale or wherever else are tweaked a bit. Okay, thank you, guys. In a moment, we'll find out how Thomas Jefferson invented meritocracy whilst being a slaveholder. But first, a reminder to people listening, if you're not an Economist subscriber already, you are missing out. This week's issue has a great briefing on our food systems and how COVID is exposing their fragility. All The Economist's coverage of the pandemic is in one place at economist.com slash coronavirus. To receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, head to economist.com slash pod2020. There are links in the show notes for this episode. There is a big political dimension to the debate about universities and social mobility. To find out how this originated, I've been talking to Adrian Wooldridge. He's a senior correspondent at The Economist who's written books about America. His latest one, published imminently, is called Meritocracy, the Secret History of a Revolutionary Idea. America has always regarded itself as a sort of quintessentially meritocratic society. The American Revolution was a revolt against the European world of hierarchy and privileged elder sons and restricted opportunities. And what the architecture of the revolution wanted to do was to create not really so much as an egalitarian democracy, but to create a world run by a natural aristocracy. These were people who were by nature rather than by convention or birth, people who were intelligent, people who were virtuous, and people who are fit to rule. Jefferson was particularly obsessed by this, and Jefferson's great passion was education. He created the University of Virginia. He was a passionate supporter of lots of opportunities for people to get to the University of Virginia from all sorts of backgrounds. 
He talked rather unpleasantly to modern ears about raking up a few geniuses from the rubbish of humanity. This combined preoccupation with the power of education and with the necessity of creating a natural aristocracy to run the new republic it has been perpetuated down the years. Obviously, talk of rubbish of humanity has become increasingly unfashionable. And obviously, America has become more democratic over the years. But there's also this notion that what democracy, what equality means is the ability for people with energy and ability and talent to make it to the top. And the way that they should do this is partly by starting their own businesses, partly by expressing their natural energies in accumulating money, but also through education. And the role of education has become bigger and bigger and bigger throughout the years. America struggles between the idea of equality, democracy on the one hand, and the reality of inequality. It justifies that struggle by saying we, we believe in opportunity more than anything else. And part of opportunity is education. And America has been very, very fixated on the importance, the centrality of universities in its education system. And that's why Congress, led by the president, passed the law. The Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, better known as the GI Bill of Rights. And Jefferson's natural aristocracy suddenly becomes vastly bigger in the decades following the Second World War. The government pays Sergeant Brown's school up to $500 a year, while Brown gets $50 a month for subsistence. You know, in 1947, you have 1.6 million military veterans enrolling in college. What Jefferson perhaps conceived as a system that would educate a future elite suddenly is educating an awful lot of people. What are the consequences of that? The consequence of that is both a huge expansion of the university system. Lots of people who would never before the Second World War have had a chance to get into universities are finally admitted. But second, it's a sort of change in the nature of the elites because a lot of these people, they want to have families, they want to get on in life. So they're much more drawn towards science, engineering, practical subjects. That briefcase contains some papers that are going to make some young men mighty happy. The man who carried it was personnel representative of one of the largest corporations in America. He came here to the college to interview some young men who will graduate in engineering this June. So instead of having a relatively small university system that focuses a lot on training people in the traditional educational subjects of a ruling class, is churning out large numbers of people in engineering, in science, in practical subjects. These jobs are looking for young men with ability. The demand is greater than the supply. And also these people, when they go to university, because they've, they've fought in the war, you know, many of them are married, they want to get quick returns for their investment in education. They don't want to hang around on their campuses. They don't want to engage in the Scott Fitzgerald sort of world of Princeton. They want to get on with their lives. So the nature, the character of higher education changes and expands at the same time. So Adrian, at this point, this looks like an unabashedly good story. Meritocracy is on the rise. And yet looking at more recent events, education has become such a stark dividing line in politics, hasn't it? How do we go from education as such an apparently sort of unifying net positive for American democracy to a point where you can have a candidate like Donald Trump running against the pointy-headed exam passers who people the Obama administration? One of the most important points in the expansion of higher education is the California Master Plan put in place by 
Governor Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father in 1960, which enormously expands the size of university education in California and creates a fantastic marriage, really, between excellence on the one hand and opportunity on the other. So you have Berkeley sitting at the top, devoted to Nobel Prize winners and the rest of it, but also a big higher education system, which gives opportunity to almost everybody. So you see this sort of ideal system marrying meritocracy with democracy. And then almost from 1960, things start to go wrong. It's partly by the sheer size of these cumbersome universities. They're processing so many people that they create a lot of alienation. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. So you get Mario Savio raging against the machine of higher education. You get the free speech movement. It began a year ago when the so-called free speech advocates, who in truth have no appreciation for freedom, were allowed to assault and humiliate the symbol of law and order of policemen on the campus. And that was... Republicans begin to turn against higher education. It concerns a dance that was sponsored by the Vietnam Day Committee, sanctioned by the university as a student activity, and that was held in the men's gymnasium at the University of California. And so you get Ronald Reagan saying these students look like Jane and smell like Tarzan. Three rock and roll bands were in the center of the gymnasium playing simultaneously all during the dance. And all during the dance, persons twisted and gyrated in provocative and sensual fashion. So that starts there in the 60s and 70s. And in a way that what's happened with Trump is the completion of that anti-higher education revolution. Why did it happen? I think it happened partly because of the leftward shift of universities, which was really pushed very hard by the Vietnam War. The universities overwhelmingly sided against the Vietnam War. But then it was also something that happens within universities themselves, and that universities, particularly the elite universities, become more and more restricted to richer people. They become ways not of opening opportunities, but of confirming elite positions on people who are already pretty privileged. So you have a closing of opportunities. People have begun to perceive the ivory tower as a bastion of social privilege, not as a way of opening up opportunity. There's a very deeply ingrained populist tradition in America, which doesn't like privilege, doesn't like inherited privilege, and certainly doesn't like snobbery. And that's shifted from regarding universities as a good thing, part of the American dream, to almost regarding American universities as against the American dream, because they're about hoarding privilege. We won the evangelicals. We won with young. We won with old. We won with highly educated. We won with poorly educated. I love the poorly educated. Trump won the poorly educated, as he termed it. He won people without college degrees, just as Hillary Clinton won people with college degrees. And in fact, you know, her propensity to win groups goes up and up and up according to their level of higher education. The people who do continue to support Trump in this election, despite his poor handling of COVID, will be the least educated. So that educational divide will be magnified. The underlying reasons that are driving this identification of people who don't have university degrees with the, with the Republican right and people who do have university degrees with the Democratic left will be strengthened. So you have this peculiar thing going on in American politics that the big divide is increasingly between the cognitive elite on the one hand and people who are outside the cognitive elite on the other hand.
John, do you have anything to add to Adrian's account of how we got here? Well, I'd say a couple of things in response to that. First of all, I think it's true that Donald Trump tapped into a sort of anti-elite sentiment, and that sentiment expresses itself in certain areas and not in others. That is, there's a strong reaction that you can see against the recommendations to mask up, although I would think that when these anti-mask demonstrators want to get their teeth fixed, they're probably going to go to someone who has an actual dental degree. The other point I'd make is that Adrian mentioned the GI Bill, and it's true, that was a tremendous driver of university education and social mobility. And I'm, I, I think both my grandfathers who served in the army, they went to college on the GI Bill. But not everyone benefited equally, right? And African Americans in particular did not benefit nearly as much as white Americans. And that's because while they weren't formally excluded from the GI Bill's benefits, a lot of the benefits were administered at state level. And, and it didn't really do anything to sort of break the cycle of discrimination that existed at that state level. And I think it's an object lesson in policy that race-neutral policy, facially race-neutral policy, can sometimes harden existing patterns of racism. And that if you want to ensure social mobility, especially now, it might be a good idea to consider race explicitly when crafting policy rather than relying on race-neutral policy to do it. I think also this is a subject where there are simply so many different ways to look at it. It's such a rich and complex history with all kinds of conclusions that can be drawn from the data about who gets into college, who gets to complete college, the mountain of debt that many students face after leaving college and the time it takes to pay down. But the reason why we continue to talk about universities and social mobility is because at the most fundamental level, there is evidence still that college is worth it. So college graduates, according to data from the Federal Reserve, earn $78,000, that's on average, and that compares with 45000 for those without a degree. So that's a premium of $33,000 a year. And that's a statistic that underlies all of this discussion and all of that fantastic history that Adrian provided, that when you just look at those earnings, which so many people are focused on as they try to map out their lives, that data, that premium, that wage premium is why this debate continues to be so active. Okay, thank you both. We'll hear from the front line of the college admissions process in just a moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. For an idea of what can be done to open up the admissions process at a top university, I spoke to David Phillips, who's Vice Provost for Admissions at Johns Hopkins University. This past year, they had 30,000 applicants for just 1,300 places. We and others who are embarking on this kind of work uh, to diversify our campuses have had to evolve and learn what achievement looks like in places that we weren't used to seeing it. You know, there, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Raj Chetty, but he came out with some very specific data that showed that 
Many American universities had more students from the top 1% than the bottom 60% of the income distribution. That means we were very used to seeing a particular type of background and what achievement meant in that context. So what we've had to learn is what does achievement look like in a different context? So students from under-resourced areas, uh, first-generation students, students who may not have had the college-going culture in their families to know what preparation for a highly selective university looks like. So we've had to train ourselves to look for that better. So as an example, it's typical that many of the better-resourced high schools have honors courses or even advanced placement curriculum. And in some under-resourced schools, that's not the case. But there are still many students who are maximizing the opportunities within the context of the high schools they go to. So we've had we've always been contextual in the way we do our work and understanding a student's environment. We've just had to expand uh, what that looks like. There's a very strong correlation in American voting between college degrees and, and voting Democrat. Do you think that if you get this right in terms like when I say you, Hopkins, institutions like Hopkins, um, get your class building right, that would tend to dissolve that divide, that association or, or correlation? Or do you think we're looking at it the wrong way around? And that actually there's something about going through the experience of a, an elite college like Hopkins that sort of makes people more likely to vote Democratic than vote Republican? You know, I'm not sure about that. I, I guess what I want to emphasize, when we talk about building a class in the service of maximizing diversity, diversity of thought, a really important concept there is that we are not by any means trying to teach people what to think. We're teaching people how to think. So we want the freedom of thought and the freedoms, and we want the diverse perspectives on our campus. We don't want that necessarily to trend in one direction or another. We just want our students to be informed. So whether that kind of intellectual diversity and that kind of uh, collision of different perspectives reinforces somebody's views better or changes them, we're kind of agnostic about, as long as they're going through that rigorous process. We just want our students to grow. So after I'd finished talking to David, I still wasn't quite satisfied that I got the answer to this question about whether it's the case that Democrats go to college or that there's something about going to college that basically takes raw material and turns it into a Democrat voter, Democratic voter after two or three or four years. And so I called Elliot Morris, who's one of the Economist's data journalists based in Washington, D.C. He argued pretty convincingly to me that it's the case that Democrats go overwhelmingly go to college. And, and he cited data from a big panel study which tracks the same group of people over time called the Cooperative Congressional Election Study. Um, which is a poll of more than 50,000 people. And that basically showed that people don't change their voting behavior a huge amount before and after going to university. So John Fasman, it seems that Democrats go to university rather than universities manufacturing Democrats. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, it's a big change for the Democratic Party if you look back at its history. Yeah, it's striking this reversal. So in 2016, 48% of college-educated white voters voted for President Trump, compared with 66% of non-college-educated white voters. And that gap narrowed somewhat in 2018 when Republicans won 61% of non-college-educated white voters. 
But the fact that shift happened at all is really striking. You know, for most of the 20th century, Democrats were the party of labor, and labor was overwhelmingly composed of white voters without college degrees who had good jobs thanks to their unions, and Republicans were the party of capital. And that started to shift, I think, in the 1960s after Lyndon Johnson, who was a Democrat, signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And you started to see especially Southern white voters without college degrees drifting over toward the Republican Party for cultural reasons. And I think over time, the shift in parties has become less defined by economic interests and more by cultural interests. And that's why that gap exists today. Adrian mentioned in passing that as people attain more educational qualifications, their propensity to vote Democratic increases. But if you look at the numbers, it's just really striking the degree to which that's true. So if you take voters who had a high school degree or diploma only, but no college degree, Donald Trump won them by 17 points. That's an absolutely blowout gap. If you look at people who have some college but not a finished degree, they were even, Trump-Clinton. If you look at those who have a bachelor's degree, they broke for Hillary Clinton by 10 points. If you look at those who have a postgraduate degree, they were Clinton by plus 23, which is just enormous. It is interesting to look at the way in which the Democrats have tried to reach out to voters without education. Part of the hope for Bernie Sanders among his supporters is is that he would bring in this broad swath of Americans with his talk about economic opportunity. And Joe Biden, you see, trying to reach out uh, very broadly as well. And his plans on, on, on college education, for what it's worth, include investments in two-year colleges, include some of the wraparound services for students to help them complete college, similar to what Idris mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, support for apprenticeships, tuition-free college for public universities for people with income, family incomes below $125,000. So I think it'll be interesting this time around in 2020, four years after Donald Trump won those voters without college degree by such a wide margin, whether there's anything in the Democratic Party platform that can bring them into the fold, or whether the divide really is a cultural one. It's not about policy. And those schisms that we saw in 2016 are sustained. I'm interested in the way that transformation of the Democratic Party that John Fasman talked about has, in a sense, distorted the party's platform. I mean, if the party often sounds obsessed with college, it's because there are so many college graduates and postgraduates in important positions in the Democratic Party. And of course, it's as well because college is important for social mobility, as we've mentioned in the past. But that often leaves the Democrats sounding like they don't have a whole lot to say to those Americans who don't have a college degree or perhaps don't even aspire to have a college degree. And it's worth remembering there that the majority of Americans do not have a bachelor's degree. I think it's something that's often missed in discussions of politics among wonks and and certainly something you might miss when you hear debates among Democratic Party bigwigs. Yeah, I think the answer to social mobility can't just be telling people to go to college, you know, telling people to accumulate tens of thousands of dollars in debt. They have to have more substantive answers because the pitch that Republicans make to non-college educated voters is these people are looking down on you. It kind of sounds true. At least it sounds compelling. And so they need a more compelling pitch on mobility. They need a better answer on that than just telling everybody they should go to college. But I don't think that I think that that's selling Democrats short. I don't think that that's what Democrats are doing. I mean, as I said, 
Biden's attention to college and to worker training in particular, his wife, Jill Biden, has worked at community colleges as a professor, is appropriate. College does help people and training does help people advance. It does help people achieve higher incomes. And I think the real trick is figuring out how to talk about this in an inclusive way that, again, isn't referring to uneducated people as deplorables, which Hillary Clinton referred to Donald Trump supporters as in 2016, but thinking about how to make this a conversation about opportunity to meet people where they are to help them advance, as opposed to setting up some paragon of achievement that only brings sort of elitist points of view and lots of debt. All right. Thank you both. Before you go, it's quiz time. This week's archive quiz is from October 1957 and a piece explaining how rising living standards were changing American politics. The pool of working class candidates from, quote, the wrong side of the tracks was drying up. Instead, the likes of Franklin Roosevelt, Adlai Stevenson and John F. Kennedy were playing down their Ivy League backgrounds. What, according to The Economist at the time, was the key attribute of the modern politician? I give you a clue. It was not whether or not he, and it was generally he, had a degree. Being tall? Uh, Having glasses? Maybe height and being able to drink beer in in a populist manner, but I don't know. The Economist reckoned at the time that the key attribute for a politician was his face because America suddenly had 50 million TV sets and what your face looked like on TV (laughs) mattered a lot more than what kind of bachelor's degree or fancy diploma you had. With the rise of the suburban voter, what was becoming the most important venue for campaigning? The drive-through? High school gyms? Apparently, again, according to our correspondent at the time, your your forebear, John Fasman, it was coffee mornings at the home of precinct committee women were, were the absolute uh, of sort of key uh, locus of political organisation in, in October 1957. The piece also lamented that the half-hour address was being replaced by the interview or press conference where candidates limit themselves to one or two gut issues. I think our correspondent would have been delighted to meet Joe Biden in 2020. This is not an intellectual age, the piece concluded rather snootily. So there you have it. Standards have been in decline for a long time. John, Charlotte, thank you very much. Charlotte, you're safe to come out the closet now. See you soon. Bye. See you soon. Thanks, John. That's all from us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. While you're there, check out The Economist's daily podcast, The Intelligence. There's an episode this week on how university finances have been hit by the pandemic. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.